0: Nobody comes into tonight's message neutral. <laughs> We're all feeling something. Some of you, uh, you're feeling nervous because you have a family member or a close friend who's gay or lesbian or bi or trans or queer, and maybe it's your son. Maybe it's your daughter. Maybe it's your sister or brother. Maybe it's a close colleague. And you love that person, and you want them to be treated with respect and with love. And they haven't always been. So you're feeling a little nervous. Others of you are gay yourself, and you know what it is to be painfully rejected. Maybe by your family, maybe by your church. People said things or did things that cut you deeply. And so just being here tonight may be bringing up painful responses for you, post-traumatic. So I honor the courage you're showing by being here or by listening to the live stream. Or maybe you're here and you've felt same-sex attractions for a while now, but you haven't told others, and so you haven't known, would it be safe for me to talk about that here? So you feel nervous or unsure. Others of you, you love the peacefulness of savior and you know how quickly divisive things get on any topic related to gay life in America. And so, you're feeling a bit of trepidation. Some of you might be feeling distress over a close friend or a Christian leader who has walked away from the historic Christian teaching and that was hard for you. Others of you, you're wondering you hold to a traditional sexual ethic, and so you don't need another sermon making the case for that, but you haven't always seen that traditional sexual ethic bring, be loving and help people flourish. Peter Valk, who equips churches on these topics, and who has given me uh, significant counsel on this sermon, told me what we've been doing in Christian churches in America is often not serving anyone very well. Married people are divorcing frequently, single people feel lonely, gay people feel left out and excluded and rejected, and Peter is a celibate gay Christian, so he knows that. He says, we've gotta change this, we gotta do better. And others of you, you feel some relief. (laughs) You're glad someone's opening up the conversation. And speaking to something that affects every person in every church. In case you're wondering, this is deeply uh, personal for me. I've had gay friends who decided to leave behind the traditional Christian sexual ethic. And we both knew that meant they would be leaving a church where we were worshiping together and serving together. And therefore, we would see each other much less. And... I remember one night, a friend and I had gone to a movie, and afterwards, we were eating and talking, and he was, he was telling me that um, a relationship with a guy in Chicago had grown. He was going to be dating him, and he had decided to leave that church. And on the way home, he pulled over the car and began to sob over the variety of losses that meant for him. And I sobbed, too. I've had other gay friends choose out of their commitment to Christ to walk the way of celibacy. And as I've gotten to listen to them and learn from them, sometimes help them after a fall, I've been changed. They have honored me with some profound moments as a pastor. And because they did find a home in a caring church community, how much they have blessed the entire church with their gifts and their outlook on life. So tonight I come, not as a politician, bless you Lord, (laughs) not as a pundit, as a pastor. And as a pastor, I'm asking a question, a question that I think is so important for everyone here. A question for our time, and it is this. Here's the way I would say it. We are, here at uh, Savior, A province, a diocese, and a church that holds to, and I'm going to quote the Jerusalem Declaration, the unchangeable standard of Christian marriage between one man and one woman as the proper place for sexual intimacy. And we live in a time when 21% of adults between the ages of 18 and 26 identify as LGBTQ. So what can we offer them What can we offer our young people coming up? How can this church be and remain a place where every person will find respect and the support we all need to walk the way of Jesus? As I've been thinking and praying and reading about this, talking with people, listening to people, I've chosen four words to point us forward. And remarkably, they all alliterate what are the odds? (laughs) Under each word, I will honestly confess where I think the church has sinned or not done well. And then I will try to speak to how I think we can do better. So, the first word is charity. Charity. Simple kindness. Listening. Love. In Romans, Paul has this amazing phrase that he says that we as Christians have, quote, a continuing debt to love one another. A continuing debt. You know, you and I, we can pay off every credit card, every student loan, we can pay off rent, we can even pay off a mortgage, but for Christians, there's one debt you and I can never pay off, and that's the debt to love. Jesus has loved us so much, and we just, we we pay him back by loving other people. And too often, the Christian approach has, to gay people has not been love. It's been fear, it's been loathing. In, in 2016, when uh, 49 LGBTQ people were gunned down at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, uh, Pat Robertson was commenting on the tragedy. And since the shooter, as you may remember, followed radical Islam, Robertson said, quote, the best thing to do is to sit on the sidelines and let them kill each other, kill themselves. Meaning, we as Christians should stand by and do nothing, or even, maybe he's insinuating, feel good about gays and Muslims killing each other. Friends, this proposal is what's called murder. This is what a heart twisted with hate produces from the mouth. And uh, lack of charity has caused much pain. We, we need to own that. West Hill, a writer, professor, a celibate, gay, Christian, was informed at one church, you won't be able to serve in the children's ministry because you called yourself gay and parents feel uncomfortable with that. One mother told me about her son who's gay and grew up in church. I've learned that gay people are perceived to be a problem to be solved. So I I just wanna say, on behalf of this church at least, to LGBTQ folks, I'm so sorry. You've been treated by Christians so often as less than, other, dangerous. In the words of our bishop, Todd, we mourn the many gay or same-sex attracted people who have lost their faith because of being mistreated in churches. I mean, who, who would ever wanna stay in a place where they're not loved? I wouldn't, and no one should. And our young people won't. When a teen realizes, My attra- I feel attracted to the same sex. On average, they will spend five years in the closet trying to make sense of that. And on, they'll do it on their own, usually without the love and wisdom of parents or youth pastors, and what happens in isolation? Nothing good, it's a breeding ground, right? For anxiety, depression, loss of faith. Peter Valk says, quote, these wounds of the closet become the greatest barrier to gay Christians thriving according to a historic sexual ethic. So I want to say whether you're young or old or whatever, you don't have to stay isolated here. I hope you feel the heart, my heart, and our heart as a people here at Savior. If you take the step to open up, You will be listened to with respect. You are welcomed, you are wanted, you are loved. We lead with charity. The second word is clarity. Clarity. There's a reason why, if you go to our website, you'll find the Jerusalem Declaration with its clear statement on human sexuality. It's because a woman who was attending here um, and, and is lesbian told me, you're not clear and i said yes we are she said no you're not and i said you're right i'm sorry so we made that clear but today many churches i notice are choosing not clarity but silence because maybe they think the kindest thing is not to bring it up i'm not sure but when we sit on the fence and when we don't make our beliefs clear who who wins and who loses we might ask that question Surprisingly, the people who lose are gay people. So stay with me for a second. I'll explain why. Let's say you're LGBTQ and you're seeking to follow a historic sexual ethic. You want a church that will support you. And and silence says to you, "Uh, we're not sure we know how to do that or we're not sure we want to do that. You're kind of on your own. Or let's take the opposite situation the person is LGBTQ and does not want to live according to the historic Christian sexual ethic. Is it kindness for that person to be given a false impression, settle in, then find out, actually, I'm on a different page? That's not kindness. So, but, if gay people lose, guess who wins? Straight people. As Valk puts it, straight people don't want to have to count the cost of God's wisdom for sexual ethics in their own lives. Or the public cost of defending a historic sexual ethic. But this privilege for straight people, he says, comes at a great cost for gay people. When the church is silent, the church can't take any meaningful steps to support gay people. You can't correct, he says, the homophobic beliefs of some members or the cultural capitulation of other members. You can't say that your staff is available to offer LGBTQ people God's love and wisdom in one-on-one pastoral care. You can't take meaningful steps to celebrate vocational singleness or help singles build intentional Christian community. You can't protect gay kids from the wounds of the closet and from abandoning a historic sexual ethic or a belief in God. Clarity is a gift. Maybe the silence is because We've lost our capacity to stand out because of our countercultural practices. In the second century, when Romans, quote, tended to swap wives, have sex with slaves, and indulge urges of all kinds, unquote, a Christian wrote a letter explaining how you can tell a Christian from other people. You can't do it by their language, you can't do it by their dress or customs or ethnicity because Christians are in all different groups. But here's part of the letter and he says this. Christians marry and have children just like other people do, but they don't destroy their offspring. They share their meals, but not their wives. Now that was hugely countercultural at the time. But think what it did. It saved the lives of children. It saved the dignity of women. And today, when we lose our countercultural distinctiveness, it's the gay Christian who wants to live according to their conscience with a Christian sexual ethic, if they've been convinced and are trying to follow that, they lose. I was talking uh, to Peter again and he said the experiences with pastors that have created the biggest crises of faith for me are not with the Pray the Gay Away pastors, although that has been traumatic. No, it was times I was struggling in my convictions or had recently transgressed my commitments, and then I reached out to a pastor who I thought was committed to a historic sexual ethic to confess, to receive forgiveness and instruction, to process my doubts while also finding stability in the strength of their conviction, and instead, in my time of doubt, they just piled on their doubt or revealed that they held a revisionist sexual ethic, and it was disorienting, and it threw me into crisis. So charity, charity, and clarity, clarity. The third word to guide us is consistency, consistency. Some years back, I remember a 20-something guy came to me, I'll call him Reggie. Reggie had known of and struggled with his gay longing since he was a kid. And now he told me, I've decided decided to start dating, meaning guys. And here's how he explained his decision. He said, Jesus spoke clearly on divorce, and yet churches give a pass to people to get a divorce and remarry. But he didn't say a word about being gay, and churches get all uptight about that. Well, Reggie, you're right. Inconsistency of churches is a sin. Forgive us. Now, notice how consistent Paul is when he writes to early Christians. He says, don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking to every single person in the church. The Christian life only works in community and it only works in a community where everyone is making a reasonable uh, effort, I would say, or commitment to pursuing holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, here's a particularly pain-inducing way that churches have been inconsistent. And I'll put this in the way it sounds or comes across to the gay Christian who's in the church. Our sexual temptations are temptations. Your sexual temptations are sins. This is even the teaching of some denominations. But temptation is not a sin. The Bible says clearly Jesus was tempted every way we are, and he, yet he did not sin. So it's obvious. Like, It's so straightforward. If you feel same-sex attractions, you haven't sinned. You don't need to feel guilty about feeling those. Guilt comes whenever we give in to the temptation, when we surrender our will and follow it to, say, lust or acting out or whatever it may be. This is consistently true for every believer. But based on this belief, churches have often said to gay Christians, you gotta change your desires. And so there's been and still is often in expectation with enough prayer, any Christian experiencing same-sex attraction uh, should change and would change. The evidence is in, and it doesn't bear that out. Psychologists Stan Jones and Mark Yarhouse conducted a careful longitudinal study of people who participated in Exodus programs to try to change their orientation. 11% did report some measure of change. Among the remaining 89%, some said they experienced some help in remaining chaste, but still, 89% of those who sought change did not. And we must listen alongside the data to the accounts of Christians who suffered in such attempts. You know, one told me from age 15 to 25, I met with three therapists who promised to increase my heterosexuality. He just goes on and on and on. And it it was so traumatic. Instructed me to do infantile activities to repair my childhood wound and stuff like this. And here's how he summarizes his painful experience. The spiritual abuse inflicted on me damaged my capacity for intimacy with God. I still choose daily to believe God exists and that he loves me, and I've given my whole life to following his teachings, but I walk with a painful emptiness, that cold presence of God's absence. I long for that to change. Now, friends, all this terrible trauma could be avoided if we were just simply consistent. If we just said, everybody has a temptation, has temptations. Temptations in themselves are not sin. We just need help to handle our temptations. Rick Warren has (laughs) an old phrase, if we confessed our temptations more, we would confess our sins less. (laughs) Anyway, charity, clarity, consistency. And the fourth word is calling. Calling. Now, with charity, clarity, and consistency, we can become a community of welcome and safety for the gay person, okay? And that's the essential start. But the goal is what? That every person in the church live out their callings to the glory of God. So you have to ask, is this church or any church a place where gay Christians can contribute their uniqueness? In her book, Gay and Catholic, Eve Tushnet has an amazing quote. She says, you can't have a vocation of not gay marriage or not having sex. You can't have a vocation of no. So following up on this idea, West Hill asks, what am I being called into positively? How might my being gay itself constitute a call and how might it be the very means by which I discover new ways to love God and others? So I've just had a few pastoral thoughts Uh, About this because the idea has been quite captivating to me the first one and I wish this didn't even have to be said a Church should be a place where gay Christian has the freedom to serve anywhere in the church children's ministry on the board ordained There's a denomination right now debating whether gay people who hold to a traditional Christian sexual ethic can be ordained What is that debate for? And then, as a group, gay Christians have things they can teach the whole church. I'll just mention a couple. Picking up on uh, the teaching of Deb from last week, uh, along with our straight singles, for example, they teach us the power of the spiritual friendship. The power of friendship. Which helps to dethrone this kind of cultural idol around sex and romance. Rebecca McLaughlin, a Brit and a brilliant Christian writer, says we all have this mental scale where sex and romance are like way up here and friendship is like way down here. It's like the consolation prize, the booby prize. And, and she argues that that really doesn't even match people's experience. She says, while sexual contact may involve a more powerful physiological response, it's not necessarily more truly intimate And if any of you have suffered sexual activity in which there was not love, and you know what she's talking about here, but she says, but just leaving that aside for a minute, she says it's not necessarily more intimate than a deeply meaningful hug with a friend, a loving arm around our shoulders. She says we're led to believe we cannot live without sex. We're more likely to wither without friends and family love. So, this is an important life truth. Who's gonna teach us this? Television's not gonna teach us this. We'll get it from, primarily from our single Christians, gay and straight. All right. Uh, uh, Moving on here. I'll mention one more thing that I think our gay Christian members can teach us that we all need to learn. Today, to be a Christian in America is to feel more and more marginalized. I assume you felt that, you see that. Do we know how to bear with that? Do we know how to even thrive under that? Well, guess what? The celibate gay Christian has been living with being marginalized for a long time. They often get the trifecta, meaning they feel disapproval in their family and the church, and in the culture. In the words of Mark Yarhouse, they are, quote, marginalized by the mainstream LGBTQ plus community for adherence to a traditional Christian sexual ethic. Friends, I, can, you, can you picture, and I, I think you can because we, tried to create a listening culture here. Can you imagine if we became known for our charity, our clarity, our consistency, and and how we welcome the calling and the contributions of gay Christians? I'll tell you what will happen. Our church will be a puzzlement to many. Many in the culture, many in the church. But something beautiful happens and, and I, I feel like Isaiah describes the goodness that could come. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Amen.